0: You're listening to episode 244 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the amazing, the incredible Mr. Daniel Feinberg, Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was... <laughs>
1: Just, just too much stuff, uh, between, between various award shows and the start of Sundance and the fact that television hasn't really slowed down for the month of January, a little bit exhausted, and yet I was not the one yawning up a storm before we started recording, so we'll see who falls asleep mid-podcast first. My hunch is you.
0: Yeah, Sorry. It's just cold in L.A. And I mean, okay, it's L.A. cold. Okay, I'm not going to complain because our wonderful new producer, Aaron, is in what state, Aaron? Where are you? There's snow. That's all I know. Wisconsin, the land of beer and cheese. Oh, my goodness. No, Uh, all that cold, though. But it's cold here for me, though.
1: Also, I think it's 65 to 70 degrees out right now. I was just out on my balcony watering stuff and it was warm. So I think you may just have cold air stored in your house. That would be my yeah,
0: guess. Absolutely.
1: And your, and your dog is desperately trying to get outside where it's warm. So just going to yeah, say. Yeah.
0: Well, <laughs> Hurley does enjoy barking at the trash trucks as they pass by. And that's what just happens. So.
1: And who can blame her? Yes. Let's get to business because there's a lot of business.
0: Yeah. So we're going to start with headlines as we usually do. So here we go.
2: Number one.
0: CBS is near a deal for a spinoff of Young Sheldon revolving around, no, not Sheldon, but Montana Jordan and Emily Osmet's characters, George and Mandy. Once deals close, CBS would order the comedy straight to series, which would keep Chuck Lorre on broadcast after the conclusions this year of both Young Sheldon and Bob Hart's Abishola
1: this young Sheldon spinoff is not to be confused with the young Jethro spinoff from NCIS that we discussed on last week's podcast.
0: So young, sort of, like, older Georgie, older Mandy? I don't know what this, they're going to call this thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I don't know, but whatever. If they want to keep the brand going, that's that's fine. Good on, good on them. Continuing, we did a fair amount of White Lotus casting last week, but guess what? There's even more. Season 3 of White Lotus has rounded out its cast with Walton Goggins, Patrick Schwarzenegger, Amy Lou Wood from Sex Education, Sarah Catherine Hook, and Sam Navola joining the cast. Elsewhere, speaking of big names doing big TV shows, Javier Bardem, Nathan Lane, and Chloe Sevigny have joined the season two cast of Ryan Murphy's Netflix, apparently it's an anthology, Monster, which will focus on the Menendez Brothers, not to be confused with whatever the Menendez Brothers show was a couple years ago with Edie Falco on NBC, which was also not very good, but we just need to keep telling these stories over and over and over again.
0: I see you did there, Dan. What did I do there? I mean, it's called a callback.
1: Oh. Well, over I guess that's... and
0: over and over again. Yeah, I get it. I'm I gonna... suppose. Yeah. <laughs> Elsewhere, Amazon is making a big play for faith-based programming and has ordered the series House of David, which follows King Saul as he falls victim to his own pride. Dan, <laughs> this is a crazy deal I mean, not the a, show but the the deal itself well what's crazy about it
1: just that it exists or that it there's... exists
0: you know it's like we're we're at we're at this so speaking of doing things over and over and over again haven't we already done this in tv like i know that chosen is like this big hit you know the, the started on kickstarter the cw aired it lionsgate has global rights to it etc but like didn't, we, didn't Mark Burnett already go through this whole wave of television?
1: It did, and it did fairly well. I mean, the numbers, that even the follow-up things, there was whatever the first one was, I don't remember it, that did extraordinarily well, and then subsequent ones did less well and whatever. But I think those numbers right now would probably make CBS perfectly happy in today's modern television landscape. Uh, I'm always somewhat perplexed by the idea that faith-based programming and values-based programming are always pretty much exclusively... Uh, uh, it becomes code for Christian. There's not such a thing as faith-based programming on mainstream television that's Muslim-based or Jewish-based. No, it's always it's always Christian, even when it's mining stories from the Old Testament, which this is. This is not a Christian story, but when it gets pushed to a faith-based audience, it will not get pushed to synagogues and temples. It will get pushed to church-based groups. And it doesn't bother me, because that's the great thing about having, uh, you know, 600- I guess now into the 500 scripted programs per year is that you really should be able to target specific demographics. And there is no question that if you look at movie box office, there is a faith-based, and by faith-based again, I mean Christian-based audience out there. So yeah, it doesn't, doesn't shock me. It's just kind of, it's the way we use codes for things when it should be perfectly simple to say, we're going to do some Christian programming because there's a lot of audience out there for it or alternatively maybe the next one will focus on jewish characters and will be all about jewish culture but guess what that will not be the case <laughs> continuing along on the cancellation front apple has canceled schmigadoon after two seasons and max has passed on a third season of the Israel produced comedy rap Shit. yeah it's totally fine and given that my feelings on schmigadoon are my feelings on schmigadoon uh Repshit was a good show, and unfortunately it becomes yet another uh, max cancellation that specifically focuses on shows uh, built around characters who are female, sometimes LBGTQ+, sometimes uh, people of color. So, yeah, definitely there's a sense that Max is looking at certain shows with marginal audiences and, once again, coding marginal audiences all too frequently.
0: Yeah, Julia, or flag death. Those are also fellow Max cancellations over at Apple. Yeah, Central Park, which is the musical animated comedy from uh, Bob's Burgers creators and uh, Swagger, the, 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 the Kevin Durant uh, basketball drama. Kind of a bummer. I, you know, Schmingen, it wasn't, Schmingen wasn't really up my alley, but I appreciate the fact that they went, they really went for it.
1: And they employed a lot of very talented people and there was an audience that was very warm towards that show and again apparently the audience was
0: insufficient it was wholly original and you got to give them props for that and what's interesting is the creator shared on social that scripts for season three have already been completed as, as well as 25 original songs for the for whatever however many new episodes for a potential season three that Could come if they decide to to shop the show. The show is produced by Universal Television and Lauren Michaels Broadway Video. Big names attached there. But uh, yeah, we'll see if it finds a new home elsewhere. I mean,
1: Peacock would seem like a semi-logical fit, again, given the NBC Universal Television of it.
0: Yeah, but Peacock couldn't make Girls 5 ever work and sold it to Netflix. Absolutely. It's bound to be a, a huge smash.
1: I don't know necessarily that that's true, but we will we will see. It's gonna be
0: true. Mark my words. Okay, I consider them marked. Episode two forty four, Girls Five Eva will be a monster hit for Netflix.
1: Monster hit. Monster hit. Whatever the hell that means.
0: Yeah, I mean, don't make me do math, man. (laughs) I'm not doing math.
1: Basically, we need to wait for it to premiere. Then we need to wait for roughly six months later. And maybe we can look for that Netflix uh, gigantic Excel spreadsheet. And then we can go, ooh, this is totally a monster hit. Again, whatever that means.
0: And I'll say, you know what, Dan? Episode 244, mark my words. I called it. Okay. I, I, right. We just we just need what a specific
1: definition is. And anyway, a monster hit for Netflix, not to be confused with Netflix's Net, uh, Brian Murphy anthology, Monster, which will be starring Javier Bardem, Nathan Lane, and Chloe Sevigny, and will be focusing on the Menendez brothers. We're just going to start this headline segment over again from scratch. It's just going to become a looping headline segment into perpetuity.
0: Speaking of looping, The Office is inching closer to getting a new life at Universal Television, with Greg Daniels opening up a development room to explore... Explore potential ideas for a new take on the former NBC hit, which, of course, was inspired by the BBC Ricky Gervais comedy. So, nothing is ever really done.
1: And in strange news that had us at least briefly scratching our collective heads, uh, Top Chef producers magical elves is slash are developing a reality competition show set in the world. So you can't even
0: read without laughing.
1: (laughs) It's the set in the world part that kind of amuses me, but the set in the world of Chuck E. Cheese with adult contestants playing larger versions of the games they played as kids for prizes. So it's like Squid Game with more pizza, or alternatively, it's like Five Nights at Freddy's, well, hopefully less murder. The, well, just I was going to go with hopefully better <laughs> than the movie was, but uh, but the movie made a ton of money. So anyway, yes, it it's somewhat strange because there's an entire younger generation that has no point of reference at all for what Chuck E. Cheese is, other than parodies of Chuck E. Cheese. I don't even think they take soccer teams to Chuck E. Cheese anymore when they've had failed seasons so it has no meaning to anyone other than generations who have nostalgia for it and then they're gonna have to sit and explain to their kids what it is i whatever anyway uh yay chuck e cheese um yay ski ball forever
0: once in college as a prank we were there having pizza and beer for lunch and there was there was not a thing going on and a couple of us snaked uh, Chuck E. Cheese's microphone and brought it back to our, the newsroom of our college paper as some stupid pranks like, look, we got Chucky's microphone. Yeah, we were really stupid then. Boy,
1: I hope (laughs) the statute of limitations has passed on that particular crime, because otherwise I may need to be hosting this podcast uh, solo next week when you're in the huskow for uh, vandalism (laughs) at at Chuck E. Cheese. This will be a horrible nightmare. none of the
0: Chuck E. Cheeses still have any of the animatronic characters left. I, I mean, I think Chuck E. Cheese still exists today, but there's no dancing rat.
1: And if you don't have Charles Entertainment Cheese, is it truly Chuck E. Cheese?
0: Oh, you full named him, man. Uh, You know, it's it's sort of... What did he do to you?
1: (laughs) It's his name. (laughs) Also, he's a grown-up. I I don't know that he necessarily needs to go by Chuck anymore. He can be I mean,
0: I'm not even going to touch that one, man.
1: That's probably just as well. I'm probably just
0: punching beneath here.
1: Uh, Well, definitely mockery of Chuck E. Cheese (laughs) is punching down. There is no question. Uh, And guess what? Shockingly, the pizza, not so good anyway. So, yeah, you
0: know, it wasn't terrible
1: I, for broke college
0: kids. It was good. It was good for what it was. And if you're, you know, we going after because your soccer team lost, it doesn't care. You don't care what it is. You're getting that pizza. is
1: definitely nostalgia talking. I remember the ski ball, your and softball
0: the- team. For in my case,
1: I remember the ski ball, and I remember the uh, high quality uh, musical performances.
0: We would go to here in in SoCal. We would go to to Flaky Jake's in Santa Monica, which was a thing that existed. In the 80s. It was like Fuddruckers before it was Fuddruckers. The whole team would go.
1: There is no way that Flaky Jakes is a real thing. I, I refuse to accept it that. It
0: was, and I don't I don't think it is anymore, but uh, that's where we went.
1: Okay. For, Win for or me. lose.
0: Moving on. Up next.
2: Number two.
0: Following a month's long delay as a result of Hollywood's dual labor strikes, the 75th annual Primetime Emmys have officially... Now, finally, come and gone. The winners, Dan, largely, as everyone suspected, maybe a couple of surprises here and there. But what did you think of the winners? I mean, you've got sweeps from the Bear, Succession, and Beef.
1: The winners were basically exactly what you would have predicted, um, both because they were what you would have predicted, but also because they were the basically exact same winners as the Golden Globes eight days earlier and basically the exact Winners as the Critics' Choice Awards, whatever they are, one day earlier. So it was hard to find surprising winners. And, and that's always a minor disappointment. So,
0: I mean, I was kind of surprised by Nisi Nash Betts. For Dahmer Monster, which we'll get to in, a, in our next segment in terms of the actual show, because I can't stop saying Dahmer Monster like it's someone's first name and last name, Dahmer Monster. But yeah, Nisi Nash Betts was a surprise for me. I, I think
1: that if you had asked me when Dahmer Monster, Monster Dahmer the Jeffrey Dahmer story, Dahmer, Monster, uh, when it premiered, incidentally, I don't know if you know this, Leslie, uh, Monster is coming back for a second season. It's now an anthology. It's going to be based on uh, the Menendez brothers.
0: Yeah, and NBC already did a show about the Menendez brothers. That's
1: We're all just repeating everything over and over again here. Um, I think if you'd asked me then... If I would buy that Nisi Nash was going to win an Emmy for that performance, I think I would have told you absolutely. I honestly, because it, it, it's a really good performance, and it's and it's the good episode of Monster Dahmer, the Jeffrey Dahmer Monster story. So it doesn't bother me whether or not I would have predicted it. I'm not sure. I think I'm a little bit unsure on whether Evan Moss Bacharach really should have won because, keeping in mind, it's season one of the show, and I really didn't think that the character was all that interesting in the first season, I thought the character was absolutely worthy of winning in the second season, then, you know, you'll get all the conversations about whether Io Debrey should have been in the supporting category, which she's already moved to, to lead actress and already won a Golden Globe and Critics' Choice for that. So I think the fact that we had given all of these shows these awards, it just made it hard not to predict the correct winners, even when the winners were frustrating like like to me Jennifer Coolidge winning love Jennifer Coolidge lover to death ridiculous to me that White Lotus was in the drama fields anyway and extra ridiculous that I just don't understand that performance being a drama performance I think that a lot of the conversation I saw after the show was about the category confusion and people being perplexed, annoyed, frustrated, incredulous, take your pick, about The Bear being a comedy. And again, I, I say the same thing every single time we have this conversation. I, I think that The Bear is not not a comedy. I can take it kind of as a 50% kind of show. Whereas with White Lotus, to me, 90% of that show is a satire. It's If, if that show is not a comedy, then I don't know how to deal with that show, because to me, the show is aiming to be funny. And if it's not aiming to be funny, if it's aiming to be dramatic, then I don't know that it's achieving what it's trying to achieve. But I think it is, because I think it's satire. And Jesse Armstrong, when he accepted his drama series his final drama series win for uh succession he specifically referred to the show as a four season satire so it was almost like his way of saying yeah whatever you keep giving us these awards but i think that there was annoyance about the bear being there and i kind of wonder if this show is going to be a tipping point for some sort of tangible actual changes to the emmy nomination structure and categorization with the problem being that i don't think it's any one fix I think that the only way that you can fix the Emmy categories is to entirely tear down all 750 awards that they give out and say, what is a list of nominations that we can do that would be more fitting with what television is in 2024, whether that's you know, frequently discussed dramedy category, which I truly don't think would work, uh, but I still understand the temptation, uh, whether it's a half hour versus hour, whether it's a broadcast versus cable versus streaming, you know, I don't know what the answer is, because it it's a it's a change that has to be wholesale, it can't it can't just be let's make a minor little tweak, because the problems are truly across the board, the problems are on the variety categories that they keep not being able to consistently give out. The problems are with the TV movie categories that they're confused on. The problems are with anthology series and limited series. The problems are everywhere.
0: And limited shows that are submitted as limited because they are limited except quietly people know it's going to get renewed.
1: Which is always constant and and also we kind of pester people to say things so you know the team behind Beef has to be asked could there be a season two of Beef and they keep saying well if the right story comes along or whatever there doesn't need to be a season two of Beef it can, it can just. Be There's
0: different. going to be a season two of Beef because it lends, it plays right into becoming an anthology.
1: I, I mean I guess it will if you treat it as a straightforward anthology and actually do a different story, I've got no problems with that. But if we bring back any of the characters, then it becomes a whole thing. And maybe just the solution is that next year, the bear submits his drama. Which
0: you mean doesn't... September.
1: Exactly. So it, it, when it's already won for that season at the Golden Globes as a comedy, the only reason why that would make any sense is because if you were going to do something like that, which I do not expect them to do, now is the time to do it because the drama field has been entirely decimated by show's ending. So the fact that Better Call Saul, Succession, This Is Us, and White Lotus, that none of them are going to have seasons for next year. So so basically if if the bear were to say, sure, whatever, we'll we'll be peer pressured into going as a drama next year, it would get all of the same nominations. It would, it would not be impacted in any way. Io would still get her nomination, uh, Jeremy Allen White would still get his nomination, it would still get a series nomination. It would just be in the drama categories, but then it would be different shows treating it as different things, which does happen occasionally. Like uh, initially the Emmys treated Orange is the New Black as a comedy. Then they changed it to a drama the next year. But several of the other award shows kept it in comedy categories after that. So it's not entirely unprecedented. It would just be a a strange thing for it to do. So yeah, look, the the awards were boring. It is always going to be boring if the same three shows win everything in the categories. That, that's just always be the case. And with the Emmys lately, that's been the case more often than not, whether it's Shit's Creek winning everything in the comedy that one year, The Crown for the fourth season winning everything in, in drama for that year, Successions had a couple of years of sweeps. There are always sweeps to some degree in the limited series category, though I don't know that it's ever been quite this consistent, but definitely The Watchmen won nearly everything that one year, etc. And yet I can still step back and go, you know, Succession was my favorite of the shows in the drama, even if I love Better Call Saul to death. And Beef was my favorite show in all of the limited fields. And Do I think that the bear was my favorite in those categories? No, but it wasn't, you know, there have been worse disasters, but still anytime it's basically a three show domination. And then even the things on the periphery, like, oh, good. Another John Oliver win. Well, does it deserve it? Yes. But is it exciting? No, I can't speak to RuPaul's Drag Race. I am not a RuPaul's Drag Race viewer, so I can't be like, it's ridiculous that it keeps winning every year. But it's certainly dramatically unsatisfying that it keeps winning every year in the same way that it was when Amazing Race won every year, which was also wholly ridiculous. By the time Amazing Race had won like four or five in a row, it was A subpar show that kept beating better shows. I can't say that about RuPaul's Drag Race because I'm not a regular viewer. I just know that it's not surprising and it's not fun. And sometimes surprising and fun are are nice. What else do we want to say about the awards? Who were the big winners on the the studio slash network slash that side?
0: Yeah, on the platform side, HBO and HBO Max led the pack with 31 combined. Wins because the company submitted HBO originals and Max shows under the HBO Max moniker. So, which is weird and confusing because HBO Max doesn't exist. It's now just Max, but they're still submitting things as HBO Max. So, whatever. Figure out a better way to for us bean counters to sort all this stuff up, please, TV Academy. Elsewhere me, Netflix was second with 22, followed by FX with 16. When you add up, though, all of the different platforms that exist within Disney, so you've got Disney+, Plus, Hulu, FX, National Geographic, Onyx Collective, etc. Disney actually had more overall wins than Warner Brothers Discovery, which you add up HBO, HBO Max, or Max, whatever you want to call it, CNN, and any anyone else under that conglomerate's umbrella, it was still Disney's day on a larger scale.
1: And it's just hard to take... You know, so FX obviously takes credit for all of those bear wins.
0: Yeah, the bear led the pack with ten. Yeah, and broke a record from Shit's Creek. Yeah,
1: which I understand, and yet still you're talking about FX taking credit for a show that never aired once on FX. So true,
0: but it streams on Hulu. But a show made by the team at FX. But I mean, you know, Disney also tried counting a, a you know one a, a win from the creative arts for a show that it produced by ABC Studios, but it actually aired on Apple. So they took credit for that as a win because technically that show was produced by Disney, but it the platform, because we count it, it's literally wins by platform. It doesn't count, right? But then it gets really murky because you get into the FX Hulu stuff. And then it's like, it's such a mess when you try to count all of this stuff up because technically a Ted Lasso win would count for Warner Discovery because this Warner Brothers television is the studio on Ted Lasso. So how do you want to add these? You can get creative with all these numbers and spin it any way you want. But either way, on paper, HBO Max, yes, I'm going to call it HBO Max, was the night's big winner. But overall, Disney really combined, you, it shows the power of their portfolio.
1: So those were the awards themselves. And they weren't exciting. We talked about that, but they were interesting. So we acknowledged them. And I guess we didn't talk about... Uh, the 0 for 53 final conclusion of Better Call Saul, which is just sad. There's, there's That's nothing. That's crazy. Criminal. There's just, it's just sad. There's, there's nothing else I can say because in a lot of the cases, it was going up against buzz saws like Succession that- Maybe I prefer better by a scintilla, but still in all for the show, never to have won an Emmy. Bob Odenkirk never to have won for Ray Seahorn, never to have won for the show, never to have won for cinematography. That is just, you know, so okay, if Better Call Saul had won two Emmys for cinematography over the years and been two for 53, would that be better? I don't know. Uh, So anyway, so those are the awards. Let's go on to our next topic, which is the telecast.
0: Yeah, the show itself up next. Number three. The Emmy Telecast was actually good. Anthony Anderson did what Joe Coy couldn't and kept things upbeat and entertaining. And the show actually came in on time. Producers found a really fun and creative way to celebrate 75 years of the mediums with reunions for Allie McBeal and Cheers and Martin and, and brought out some of the OG Grey's Anatomy stars, including Katherine Heigel, which kind of blew my mind, and Justin Chambers, who was unceremoniously let go a couple of seasons ago. But anyway, bygones, right? Speaking of Ally McBeal. And they recreated some of TV's most iconic sets, which was a really, really fun thing to do and and way to honor a lot of different shows. And then the speeches were great too, Dan.
1: I didn't think the speeches as a rule were great. I thought some of them were, were decent. And I think a lot of the best speeches came from people who hadn't had to give the exact same speeches two times in the previous eight days. And I think that absolutely took away from the moments. You know, there, There's just no question that Kieran Culkin can only pretend to be surprised and flustered so many different times before you go, yeah, you knew you were going to win. And I felt like there were a lot of people like that, which is why a lot of the, of the speeches that were best were from the people who hadn't had to give those speeches three times. So Nisi Nash's speech was a great one because it felt spontaneous. It felt like it wasn't the speech she'd given. RuPaul's speech, I thought, was a very very good speech in part because RuPaul hadn't given the exact same speech a dozen times and and then people were sort of good and earnest but there's still something of the spontaneity that just gets lost if they've given the same speech over and over again and so you know stephen young just i thought he's always likable and charming and down to earth it's just too bad that his most vulnerable And most emotionally available speech had to be at the Golden Globes. And I felt a lot of people ended up stuck in that situation where they'd expressed the gratitude they were feeling for a worthless, meaningless award, the Golden Globes, as opposed to the truly significant and meaningful awards that are the Emmys. The Emmys are more meaningful than the Golden Globes. That's what I'm saying. It didn't necessarily always feel like that during the telecast and and the speeches to me suffered and and the show it just it didn't have those moments but it did as you say it had other moments and to its absolute credit the moments were kind of produced credits so again you look at the contrast with the golden globes where the only good moments were speeches there was nothing that the production on that show did that made it a better show. Here, the producers were actively trying to pay tribute to television. You could see the effort they were putting. You could see the earnestness and affection that they were putting into it. And it really was contagious. And Anthony Anderson was, was absolutely a perfect host for the circumstances. He did lots of costume changes. He he sang. He Put himself into strange television shows that he wouldn't otherwise be a part of. Uh, he was—he was just good. It wasn't like it was the funniest hosting show uh, duty I've ever seen. It was not one of those. Uh, Man, that was that was hilarious. Every bit was great. I don't even think he—he he didn't do a monologue. He mostly. Eliminated the kind of things that that become hit and miss when hosts do it, and instead he was absolutely a master of ceremonies for the show. He steered the show along with the help of his mother, who made sure that speeches didn't go long, which would have been a problem if the speeches were better. You know, if 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 she had interrupted a great speech, I'd have been like, no, that's wrong. I don't want Anthony Anderson's mother telling someone being emotional to stop talking. For the most part, she didn't have to do that, and that was a tremendous relief. Yeah, the show moved along. I mean, you say it came in on time. It probably could have come in 10 minutes early easy if that was a thing that anyone thought was ideal. Now, you don't want to do that because affiliates and news and all of that, people would freak out. But with 20 minutes left, there were three awards still to give, and that was it. They could have been done at 10.50 Eastern easy if they'd wanted to. Instead, they kind of allowed things to continue and to play along. So the last bit with uh, Tracy Ellis Ross and Natasha Leone and the I Love Lucy chocolate thing, I feel like they just let that bit go. I think it just could have been a 90 second funny thing. And instead, they stretched it out over five minutes, which was funny in its own way, Uh, and probably truer to the actual chocolate sketch but yeah so so which of the reunions were your favorites
0: honestly i I thought the ally McBeal one was really fun you know i I wish the guys had stayed out on stage after coming out of the you know the unisex bathroom you know and doing the, the little dance that they did from the show but yeah i thought it was really really cute um you know, it's not always nice to see a broadcast stalwart like Grey's Anatomy, which is yes, that show still on heading into 20, twenty seasons, get its moment in the sun because that show has and, and the word Emmy have not been in the same sentence for a very long time. Not that it's I think it's deserving. I thought the COVID season had could have gotten some attention because it was done extremely well. But it, it was just really cool to see like all those people up there getting their due. So and, you know, Heigl with with the Pompeo and everyone else. It's like, it's just a reminder of how much that show has gone through over the years.
1: And they didn't do shtick with that because they kind of felt like, okay, okay you know enough people will be will have their jaws dropped by the presence of Catherine Heigl and maybe Justin Chambers whereas the Ally McBeal guys they you know they had to do the song and dance and it was absolutely in keeping with the tone of the show yeah that was my favorite as well and I have no affection whatsoever for Ally McBeal uh, nostalgically speaking as a TV show it's a show that I watched on and off for much of its run but but really whatever
0: it made me want to (laughs) reboot it made me want to see these guys again and what they're up to now well I,
1: I mean one of their characters is dead so which was Sort of a strange, out of canon thing, but uh, but no, I felt I felt the same way. I thought that was the one where I came away going, "Huh, it's sort of charming watching those guys doing weird things again." Why would? Why couldn't you do a reboot of it? Yeah, that was definitely the one I came away with feeling that about. Then there were the couple others where, honestly, though,
0: just one more thing, I, I was kind of surprised they didn't like find a way to like project like a little dancing baby on the stage too.
1: Okay, I think I'm glad that that was not what it was. But I completely expected Anthony Anderson to uh, be in a flesh-colored bodysuit uh, and be the dancing baby. I totally thought it was after he
0: he wore latex and his rubber band, yes. I thought that was really funny. I, also, we learned a lot about Anthony Anderson in that
1: bit. I'm guessing <laughs> that somebody ran an Anthony Anderson. Will you play the dancing baby? Idea by him, and he said, "Look, you get i you get either me as a dancing baby or me in the in the rubber gimp suit from American Horror Story. You don't get both. I I have to believe that he was given the choice, and he went with the rubber suit. But yeah, no, I was I was shocked by by the affection that I felt in that." sketch you know the 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 martin thing the bit being we never got nominated for emmys that was funny and sure but then they did the exact same thing with it's always sunny which even charlie day acknowledged was wait you gave us you gave us the exact same bit as them and i liked the additional chuckle of rob McElhaney being able to be like yeah i won four emmys last week for welcome to wrexham i don't know what the rest of you guys are talking about i thought that was good Mostly, and they they did a good job bringing people out, even if they didn't do shtick around them. So, paying tribute to Carol Burnett, paying tribute to Marla Gibbs, incredible. Uh, There was at least one other who I'm blanking on. Oh, I mean uh, Joan Collins was up
0: there with uh, Taraji P Henson. That was. Amazing. Joan Collins
1: at freaking 90, not looking a day over 45. I mean, I assure you, I look older than Joan Collins does um, and much more bedraggled. Joan Collins is a much better 90 than I am a whatever the hell I am. So much praise to her. But like, people were sort of choking about the number of standing ovations, but I think that's the way the show was designed. Someone said, look, no one's going to care who wins these awards. They're a year old. What can we do to bring emotion to the show in other ways? And I thought they really did a good job with that. I mean, and...
0: Christina Applegate to open. <sighs> oh, so good. Oh, that. And yes. Standing Ovation to start, right to the heart.
1: Standing Ovation, right to the heart. And yet she was also extremely funny. She had three or four mm-hmm. punchlines that she just. Slade, and yet it is still sad. It's unavoidably sad, but it's still great that they did that for her in this moment. And I would have been perfectly happy if she had if she had won. Also, I believe when we did our "Should Win, Will Win," I said she deserved to win. I thought she was great in the last season of that show.
0: I was kind of surprised that they didn't, you know, try to get any of her co stars up there with her. I mean, that Married with Children launched, basically helped launch Fox.
1: There were definitely things they could have done more tribute and we can talk about that like i
0: i mean one of our co-stars was on one of the winningest comedies of all time
1: which show are we talking about there
0: modern family oh
1: oh oh ed o'neill okay sorry for whatever reason i just get stuck on her current show uh but yes ed o'neill was indeed you you could have done that i guess if you i mean you know people people respect katie seagal um, I'm sure Dave Faustino was available. Um, yeah. So the
0: other reunion that our you know our friend of the five Joe Adalian pointed out was there was no reunion for Happy Days, and the show was celebrating its 50th anniversary literally on the day the, of the Emmy telecast. And Henry Winkler was right there and nominated.
1: And there's no way that you couldn't have convinced Ron Howard to show up for that, also. But then Scott Bayo would have been pissed off that they that no one wanted to invite him. No one and gives no- a shit about Chachi, <laughs> and and no one wanted to invite
2: Scott. You just Baio. need Ron
0: Howard. and and Henry Winkler, and put them up there on the stage, let them stand there for a minute, get their moment in the sun, the standing ovation, and then present something and have them go. That's it.
1: I do not disagree. They certainly could have done that. Sort of reflecting on things that they could have done more tribute for, I thought that probably Norman Lear deserved a little bit more than the telecast was able to give him. I mean, I thought
0: the way that they opened that segment with Rob Reiner and Sally Struthers, and then they had Lear's iconic you know, signature hat hanging from the little hat rack, and then they put the spotlight right on that and then opened into it. I thought it was really touching. I mean, and, that, and look, that is a, a really challenging segment to do, especially when after you look at some of the true icons, including Lear, that you had to find a way to honor in a proper way. And I think shifting at the end to the performers doing the theme song from Friends and having Matthew Perry's image be the last thing, the last piece of that segment, I thought it worked really, really well. I definitely teared up.
1: I thought it worked. I just think you could have, like they've definitely had years in the past and with the Oscars as well, where they've kind of done slightly more extended tributes to a couple of people. And I definitely think that if they had expanded to three or four people getting standalone tributes, there were just too many titans who died this year, To get into the who deserves this, who deserves that, you know, who are the four people. But I think Norman Lear is different. I think you could have done a standalone to Norman Lear, you could have done 10 minutes standalone to Norman Lear, and then no one would have quibbled if everyone else got to be in, you know, the in memoriam on their own i just think norman lear is different but i'm sure some people think that matthew perry is different and some people think that paul rubens is different and you know just a, a huge list of extraordinarily talented people in that in memoriam segment so tough to know how to handle it i would have liked more norman lear but there was a lot of good stuff that was being paid tribute to
0: i mean he, they kind of opened honored him with the way that the show opened as well as the way that segment opened so
1: and a couple people throughout mentioned his name and and so he he was there it was present i just think i mean honestly you could have done an entire show
0: yeah i mean what i i loved was the way that this show like look i get it it's 75 is a good big round number we love celebrating big round numbers we have 250 coming up here on tv's top five but i love the nostalgia i truly did and and the other thing that it got me thinking because it's like if you're an entertainment website and there's a major show celebrating or a movie celebrating an anniversary we cover that Right. We always find a way it's like, oh, you know, this is the 10th anniversary of the series premiere of this or whatever. And there's like whether it's like we resurface a review or we assign out new coverage of it or there's an oral history of something like that's a part of every year on this beat. And I feel like the Emmys should take that from this ceremony and say, okay, well, 2024, what are the big anniversaries this year? Let's honor those shows that premiered that are celebrating anniversaries this year and find a way to bring that nostalgia component into the show going forward because it was so fun and just so well done. And I'm not saying you have to recreate the stages every single time that if you're going to honor, a, you know, a show or recreate the sets, but bring out some of the cast members that are celebrating the, you know, the anniversary or the creators, you know, do something because those were times that were worth celebrating, right? The the, the launches of, of big shows and franchises that are becoming harder and harder in our new fragmented landscape.
1: And it's the point of differentiation for something like the Emmys is, is, is to actually show, show respect and love for this medium again hate to keep going back and beat a dead golden globes but just the just the contrast of the golden globes where they do not care about movies or television they care about getting celebrities drunk and having people walk the red carpet it is the trademark biggest party in hollywood that is what they are selling in that show whereas The Emmys ought to be able to be like, we are the show that loves television as much as you love television here. And just, you know, the last thing I'm gonna say on this is just they did a good job of, as you say, acknowledging shows like Grey's Anatomy that maybe haven't been Emmy shows, but that are still extraordinarily successful shows. And important. and, And important and loved. And so that's a good way of saying to an audience out there, well. You know, maybe the shows that we just gave these awards to, maybe they aren't huge smash hits. Also, who knows? I mean, we do know from that list of Netflix, from that Netflix Excel spreadsheet that a lot of people watch Beef. Uh, you know, I don't know that we can make sense of what it means, but we do know Beef was a successful show for Netflix. Lots of people watched it. Lots of people had access to it, et cetera. We don't know how many people watched The Bear, but I believe we know it's a pretty large number because people are talking about it. And Succession, the conversation will always be, well, it never got the ratings of uh, Game of Thrones or even Yellowstone. But people watch that show. So but but still being able to say, Okay, we're honoring these shows, but let's also honor these shows that we know have a different audience and that has a different audience affection. I, I think it's a smart thing for the Emmys to do. And I think just given how hard it is to do an award show that gets good reviews, I think the positivity that people felt towards the Emmys will lead to imitation.
0: I hope so, because it was I thought it was one of the best award shows that I've seen in a long time. Uh, sadly, though, ratings were the opposite of good, with the Fox telecast notching yet another all-time low in both total viewers, with an average of under 4.5 million, and adults 18 to 49, with a 0.87 Gosh. as it faced competition from the NFL playoffs and coverage of the Iowa caucuses on cable news networks so maybe add a dash of nostalgia I don't, you know obviously the Friends cast wasn't in, you know was not invited to reunite here obviously they're going through some a, a tremendous loss but this May is the 20th anniversary of the series finale so maybe come September up next
2: number four
0: It's time for another season in review segment. Joining us to break down the recently concluded seasons of Fargo, The Curse, and For All Mankind is Rolling Stone, chief TV critic and BFF of the Five, the one and only Alan Sepinwall. What's what's going on, Alan? How you been?
2: Well, I mean, I was doing better before I heard you refer to another guest as a BFF of the Five. And, you know, for being linguistically strict, there can truly be only one best. Am I right? You're true, sure.
0: but who did we recall as the yeah, who, who we of the five? I,
2: I wish I had written it down, but it's I'm, you. I'm pretty <laughs> sure somebody else got the BFF treatment a couple of weeks ago. So, but maybe it's just all in my head and I'm paranoid and aggrieved and entitled, in which case I apologize to both you and the listeners of this fine podcast.
1: Now, I guess I wonder, is it possible that Leslie and I could have different BFFs of the five and that maybe the five could have a different BFFs? There could be as many as three different BFFs of the five.
0: Dan, stop. You got like, three <laughs> shows to talk about here.
1: Okay. This is well, my fault. I, polo- I apologize. Yes, you were the one who started with with by taking Umbrage <laughs> at the podcast and our and our evaluation of our friends. You are our most unique guest. That was a joke because things can't be most unique. They're only unique. So anyway. So yeah, big big finales, not quite as big as that, that four-day period uh, in the the spring when succession, Ted Lasso and uh, and Barry all ended. But still, these are these are three fairly big shows. And Maisel. Yes, indeed. That was absolutely an additional show that ended. No question about that. Uh, so, okay. So w- we've got you here to talk about the finale of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon. So what'd you think, Alan?
2: I did not watch the final season of Mrs. Maisel. <sighs> did you watch the penultimate season of Mrs. Maisel? I watched part of it. I definitely watched the finale where she and Lenny Bruce are on stage together at Carnegie Hall, and that was very good because whenever Lenny Bruce was there, that was a really good show, and a lot of it. Other time in the middle and later seasons, less so. Okay, so as as the
1: necessary proviso for the listeners, we are now talking about the finales of For All Mankind, The Curse, and Fargo. That means we will be spoiling what happened in the finales of those three shows. Consider this your warning. We are going to talk about finales. There are going to be spoilers. And the order in which we're going to talk about these shows, uh, in case you're taking notes at home and want to figure out when you want to fast forward, we're going to talk about them in the order of For All Mankind, The Curse, and Fargo. So For All Mankind, this is a show that you love very, very much. Was it your number one show multiple times or just once?
2: It was only once. And we can talk about that too. The second season, I thought, was clearly the show's best and was my favorite show of whatever year that was. I I concur. It was also in my top ten
1: for that year. And of the of the four seasons of For All Mankind, yeah, to to me that was unquestionably the best of the seasons. Are we preferred are we prepared to say that in our minds the fourth season was the worst of the four
2: seasons? No, because the (laughs) third season had Danny Stevens in it. And while I think that the fourth season was kind of a mess, including this finale, I don't think that there was any one element as annoying or just sort of outright destructive as the Danny Stevens arc was in season three.
1: Okay, I mean, if that's what we're basing things upon like the lows of season three, which is to say Danny Stevens would have been lower than any of the lows of season four. I would say I thought that the highs were less high though
2: no that's fair and though you know the thing that the show was has always been good at in every season prior to this is finales like I didn't think the first season was great I thought it got better as it went along and I thought the finale was really good and sort of both as action and as a culmination of everything that all the stories that had been telling to that point, the second season finale is an all timer. It's incredible. Third season for as many problems as I had with it. The actual finale is very good. The whole thing where they're trying to get Kelly into orbit. So she doesn't have to deliver the baby on Mars. I thought was really like a nice set piece. I, I don't think anything in this finale worked and you're right. I'm looking back on it. I'm not sure there were a lot of, you know, thrilling highs the way there usually are, even in the more uneven seasons of the show. It's too bad. I don't like, I I don't, I still want to
1: support and celebrate the show, but I I rewatched the, I rewatched all three of these finales and I don't know that anything in the finale worked for me. Like some of the performances worked, but in terms of the actual things that happened and why they happened, I, I don't know that I bought anything this season. And that's a bad sign for a show that has always required extensive buy-in. You've always had to be able to look at the show and go, is this a plausible alternative history? Is this a plausible, and now we're into just a future that's not necessarily alternative, even though it's the past. But anyway, is is this plausible? I don't know that I bought any decision a single character made in the finale, and that feels bad to me.
2: No, it's it's not great. Um, the worst of them, I think, was probably Miles, who they're, they've are they been setting up as sort of like their big new addition, and they're, they're passing the torch character, who I think was pretty much a failure throughout, and especially here because they've established him in previous episodes as this guy who all he cares about is getting his, getting the money he needs for his family to be back with his family. You know, he takes over Ilya's, you know, uh, black market operation. All of this, he has no interest in actually... Helping out with this asteroid scheme of Dev and Ed, which is a problem that we can also talk about. And then suddenly, in the last episode and a half or so, he's willing to endure torture, like repeatedly and like threats against his wife and all of this stuff. And here is the moment at which he decides, I'm going to take a stand for this cause he doesn't even believe in. Like, what was that, Dan?
1: Well, you sort of take that character as being kind of the. The Han Solo, ideally, would be what would be what you would want him to be. He would be kind of the smuggler. He would be the guy who finds a conscience. He would be the guy who who you think is rebellious and doesn't, and, you know, he's only a servant to the almighty dollar, and then he finds his moral calling. But no, I didn't buy the transition to his finding a moral calling, and I don't know that that necessarily would be bad if they just wanted to make the character a, a rapscallion, That would be fine. I don't think they really did that. And then the characters transition into something more heroic. No, I I didn't buy it at all. And I didn't buy it in large part because I also didn't buy – the the sudden discovery that there were these two torture loving intelligence agents embedded in the base (laughs) who had not been established in any other way. So their presence there wasn't like an, Oh my God, the person who I thought was bumbling, whoever actually turns out to be a CIA agent. No, it was just like, okay, here are two people who like, I guess they might, you know, were they in the,
2: had, had those characters been established in any way? I'm sure they had you pay more attention. I think the Russian one had been at least involved in some of the arguments among sort of the, you know, the upstairs, downstairs, the downstairs folks. But I couldn't honestly tell you, like maybe he's even the one who got into the fight with uh, Sveta, the, the Russian pilot who Ed had a fling with, and then she had to go home. I don't know. Cause again, the show has done really, really badly in terms of establishing characters who are not part of the original cast and we have barely any of them left at this point. It's mainly just Ed Stevens, and Ed sucks. And so much of the finale like requires you to want to root for Ed, who is just overbearing, and Dev, who is completely inscrutable for them to win because the show's sort of premise depends on it, but like I don't want to root for them. I just I want the asteroid to go to earth at this point rather than to see them have a victory.
1: Yeah, it's it's the problem with the continual pushing along of the original characters as implausible and increasingly implausible as it's been, that it's required them to serve the purposes that a well-written new character could have served with a full character arc. And so instead you have to buy that basically, uh, that all of these characters are new characters each season, except they're loaded up with latex makeup. And having Ed ed suddenly become the union firebrand this season it made no sense to me and yet it was still significantly more generous to that character than what i thought they did to danny this season which i thought was on a danny stevens level of just total character assassination except that danny stevens never had a character to assassinate he was a little pill from the beginning he just came worse danny's danny was a good character for a couple seasons this season, nothing she did made any sense with that character that we established,
2: in my opinion. And then they just did that horrible death fake-out. It's just like, that's just, you're setting up a no-win scenario because in one way, you have killed off a character that the audience still really likes, even though, as you say, the writing for her was not good this year. And the other, you've just done this really, really cheap fake-out, the schmuckiest of schmuck bait, and, you know, they went with option two. I, just, I don't even know why they bothered.
1: There was a lot of that. There was just a lot of, of character assassination or forgetting about characters. I thought that nothing they did. It, you know, you mentioned how great it was that, you know, the, the action set pieces involving getting Kelly off of Mars so that she could have the baby safely and all that. She has the baby. The whole thing about bringing the child on this mission so that he could eventually, what, go through an air duct? Like, was that <laughs> what the character, what the entire thing was? Which anyone who is a reader knows is just a straight up ripoff of prayer for Owen Meany, which where the entire story is building up to the character being able to go in an air duct. Uh, It made no sense to me. And I don't know why any of that happened.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a mess. I mean, they, they've tried establishing characters who are not the original group, but you know, they really failed awfully with Danny I don't think Kelly is really that interesting. Alayda is not super interesting outside of her relationship with Margot. And now Margot's going to prison. Miles, boring. Sam, I couldn't even tell you anything about her other than that her name is Sam. Wait, who's Sam? Sam is the other the union organizer among the downstairs people. And she's the one who has the big sort of action triumph of this finale where she's like hanging off the back of the ship and is able to knock like her boss, you know, away, but without killing him. Okay, yes, I do now know the character. I could not have told you what her name was for all of the money in the world. (laughs) Um, So, but that's the problem. It's just there's a whole lot of that going on. I thought like the year before they had established the character, I think his name was Will, who comes out while they're up on Mars and then that causes a kerfuffle. And you see him a couple times in season four, but not really. Like he to me was more interesting than a lot of the people they've actually been focusing on since then. And
1: as you say, I, I thought that Coral Pena did a really good job as Eleda as this season. And I thought it was, I think it's a tough role because even from the first season, she's never really been a real character. She, it, was, it was confusing how they interjected her into the first season. It's continued to be confusing, but I thought the stuff with Eleda and Margot was probably the season's best material because those were character interactions that I actually kind of bought. I kind of bought the. Here is this woman who Aleda owes everything to, but the betrayal that she thinks she understands took place is so colossal that I can tell how that would tear a character apart. So I I bought that and I bought the performance. I loved uh, Margot's southern-accented Russian, which was always good for a laugh, even though nobody ever made fun of it, which seems kind of bizarre to me. Uh, Yeah, I... I don't know. It's just one frustration after another. And then nothing that they set up for the next season seems meaningful to
2: me. And that's an even bigger problem, perhaps. Why wouldn't everyone involved in this scheme just go to prison right away? Well, which, what prison, where? like the the United States, like all of these countries can send forces to Mars that are armed and throw their asses in a spaceship and take them back to Earth and throw them into prison. I guess the question
1: is if you just accept that Mars is close to an industrial prison colony in the in you know at this point anyway, where it's basically just a it's a sort of glorified mining operation we we kind of decided that the actual learning on Mars, ultimately not so much relevant, but the chance to make money off of Mars, well, that can get Dev interested. Uh, yeah. I, Yeah. Fr- frustrating. It's not great, Bob. Frustrating. Okay. Eventually we promise we are going to talk about a finale that we both loved. Um, I think we're going to go next to a finale that we may be split <laughs> on. I'm not sure. Um because, yeah, let's let's talk a bit about the curse, which has definitely, in my social media spheres, such as they are, had people scratching their heads. Well, you've been scratching your head, and I've been scratching my head about this one for months now, thoughts on where the curse ended season one.
2: <sighs> There's not gonna be a season two. <laughs>
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Excuse me. It was nominated for a Golden Globe as a drama, which means it's both an ongoing series and
2: apparently a drama. I look forward to Fielder and Safdie and Stone all being asked about when season two is coming at every red carpet appearance they make. Like Emma Stone will be at the Oscars, and people will be asking her when season two of The Curse coming. That'll be. You think that's the thing that people are going to want to talk to Emma Stone about? I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> entertainment journalism in the 21st century is weird. And you um, figure
1: Nathan Fielder is walking a lot of red carpets, and that he's giving jovial, uh, entertaining answers to people about
0: things. I. Okay. And that Showtime still wants to make okay. TV that's not going to be Showtime on Paramount Plus or a Paramount Plus original.
2: All right. Also, valid question. <laughs> to answer Dan's original question, I watched this show in either September or October, maybe even in August. Because that's forget, right you watched you watched it way early because I was reviewing it for print in Rolling Stone, and you got to do that months ahead of time. Um, and as a result, like I I had to binge through the whole thing very quickly. Um, which is sort of not really an ideal way to watch the curse because it's such a, like, even in its good moments, it's such a really miserable wallow that to have to sit, like, with these people in a very concentrated burst of time, I do not recommend. But I'm watching and I'm thinking, okay, well, this is, parts of this is really interesting. These performances are all very good. I was really impressed with Nathan Fielder in particular just because he had less of a track record in that area. But I'm sort of wondering, okay, where's this all going? Where's this all going? How are they going to sort of connect all of these themes and all of these character arcs and everything else. And in the finale, it turned out they didn't want to do any of that. And instead they put Nathan Fielder on the ceiling and eventually shot him up to space. And while I think it's sort of like audacious, both just that you would do this, but also that technically they were able to pull all of this off and make it look as seamless as it was and make certain parts of it as harrowing and as creepy as it was, what the hell was that in response to the previous nine episodes, Dan?
1: I, I was, mostly I've been waiting patiently to see Leslie's reaction when we explained what happened in the last 25 minutes of the curse. Uh, because Because, again, folks, we're spoiling the end of the curse. So if you don't know that the curse ends with Nathan Fielder's
2: character floating inexplicably into outer space... N- not floating, <laughs> shooting what? up into space. Nathan Fielder, midway through the episode... He wakes up on the ceiling of their house. It turns out gravity has somehow reversed itself for him. He doesn't realize this. He thinks it's some weird problem with this house they're living in, and insists that people help get him out. As soon as he is out, he goes shooting up into the sky, grabs onto a tree branch, is holding on for dear life. Emma Stone leaves to go like deliver their baby. And so no one is there who understands what's happening. The fire department assumes he's having a psychotic episode saws off the tree branch so he will fall down into a net below. But of course because gravity is reversed in Selva, Nathan Fielder shoots up into space eventually like freezes to death and the last glimpse of him is sort of as the star child from 2001 A Space Odyssey and then you cut from that to his actual baby with uh, Emma Stone and she's very happy because she never liked him in the first place and for whatever reason she likes the baby.
0: <laughs> Just to summarize <laughs> What? <laughs>
2: This is what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> so, so what I'm going to say is that my reviewing of the finale, knowing what was coming, I honestly liked it significantly more. So that is oh, what damn. I am. <laughs> oh, damn. You know what I think, Alan? I think it is a fine piece of cinema. And I think your mistake, Alan, is viewing it as television.
2: Oh my, yeah, I had, I had, I had some, some comments in my sub stack, uh, What's Ellen Watching, which is free to subscribe to, uh, where they like started talking about it as a 10 hour movie and saying TV critics were not necessarily prepared to, you know, accept something this audacious, etc., etc. Dan, tell me, <coughs> tell me why you liked it so much more the second time. <laughs> Please. Be- okay.
1: The. Look, it's it's a it is an ending designed to cause people, specifically Leslie Goldberg to make the face that Leslie Goldberg is currently making, which is somewhere between horrified, incredulous and amused, which I And
0: think, also what?
1: Yeah, that's incredulous. <laughs> I put I put that down as incredulity, the face that you're currently making. Yeah. Um look, I I think that Like, obviously, it's it's totally out of left field, and you're either going to find the way of coping with what happens to Nathan Fielder's character, or else you're going to be unable to find a way of coping with the Nathan Fielder character. And watching it for a second time, I I did find myself sitting there kind of taking notes on the things it could mean thematically – and how I wanted to deal with it and if I wanted to deal with it. And I found ways because there are obviously the thematic ways that it wants to steer into it. So you have the, the Josh Safdie character um, making Benny. multiple Benny. sorry, good point. They are two totally different people. And now in fact, to- two totally separate people. They've, they've apparently ended their creative partnership for now. Uh, you have him kind of making, driving home the idea that the metaphor that they were going with was about uh, fathers and fears of parenthood and the desire to escape from responsibility. And so that is kind of the way that that character tries to explain what's happening. And I think that's a justifiable metaphor. I think that a justifiable metaphor is that the entire mission that they've been on with these houses that the Emma Stone character, has been designing that don't really work or don't really work in the way that they want them to or don't really work in the ways that anybody attempts to live their lives, that these are all kind of ways of of cheating nature, that they're ways of of overturning the basic laws of physics and geology and geometry and just they're, they're They're cheats, and so in the end, nature decides to fight back, and and I like that as a concept, uh, that basically at a certain point, they've been trying to undo the natural order of things, and the natural order of things undoes them in the end. You're skeptical on this, Alan, and I I can buy that. I also can buy that it is partially about the illusion that television and film's Create, And the idea that what they were trying to do this whole time was do a reality show, and yet everything that they were uh, doing was running counter to reality. And so it was an upheaval of reality. And so the fact that the, sh- the season ends with these two people staring and the only way that they can rationalize it is that it was all a stunt for a television show and that they're very uh, impressed with what the magic of TV and movies can do. So that, that kind of pushes the hypocrisy of their project to an extreme. So, okay. So there's like three or four different thematic explanations for, and you've made a face on every single one of them. And so therefore you're not buying that. Um, OK,
2: <laughs> this is how they get you, Dan. They make you like st- watch it a second time to try to justify it and come up. With- no, I look. It's But you're if you're not trying to justify what it is, then then are you
1: engaging in a conversation with the piece of art? And I'm trying to engage in a conversation with the piece <sighs> of art. <laughs> and you're I trying to make and you're trying to make fun of the piece of art, which is no, totally fine.
2: <laughs> I, what I'm saying is, I don't feel like the piece of art was in conversation with itself. I think, like as as some sort of Kafka esque short film, like Nathan Fielder wakes up on the ceiling of his home. Like you get a little background of who they are and what they do. Like it's just it's an episode. Maybe it's a 90 minute film, whatever. And this is how it concludes. I think that would be really interesting. Again, I think technically. This was pretty terrific. Parts of it were really funny. Parts of it were really scary. All of that. I do not think it, despite listening to you, you know, come up with all these (laughs) things, I do not feel it is in any way a summation of the previous nine miserable goddamn episodes, some of which were excellent. But like, I'm just saying it's a show that made the audience suffer in part under the idea, okay, this is all going somewhere. And then in the end, it was like, no, we're punking you. We're going to take this abrupt left turn. We're not going to like really address or resolve any of the things we've been dealing with up until this point. You know, the Emma Stone character who was so complicated and so messy and so terrible in all these ways, all of her problems are solved because she has a baby that we know she didn't previously want and her useless husband shoots off into space. Like just none of it felt connected to anything that came before. So even if individual pieces of it were good here, I just do, I cannot accept the idea that it is in fact like an appropriate ending to this thing.
1: But it's all the whole season, whole series was set into motion by this supernatural thing. That wasn't a supernatural thing. It was all set in motion by this curse that certain characters decided had befallen them because of their actions, when the reality was that for all of their horrible actions, they were receiving no actual karmic punishment. So I'm I'm prepared to accept that if you spend an entire season approaching bad things that are happening to you as karmic punishment, as the universe fucking with you... And the reality is that really you're just experiencing the consequences of your screwed up actions. For the universe to actually turn things upside down, then that seems uh, it seems like it's in conversation with what the show has been. That, uh, that yeah, yeah. So I can I I'm I'm prepared to accept it because watching it a second time and and expecting it to come. I found it a lot funnier, a lot of the reactions to things and sort of Nathan Fielder's character attempting to justify everything that was happening to him and trying to suggest that it had to do with the pressure in the house, for example, and that the solution was opening the window or that the solution was opening the door. And then the doula comes over and he's like, yeah, it's complete. This is completely normal. And everyone's just treating it as being On one hand, ridiculous and outlandish, but on the other hand, not nearly as ridiculous and outlandish as it is. You know, you you can be like, this is a very strange thing that's happening. And that does not fully sum up how strange it is for someone to wake up on the ceiling of their uh, of their bedroom. So this is what I'm going. This is what I'm going with. This is what I'm interpreting. Um, Does it feel does it feel? Of a piece with the nine episodes before. No, it doesn't. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that it does. Uh, but can I make a rationalization that to me makes it amusing and entertaining as a final act detour? I, I can I just whether or not whether or not it's necessary and whether anyone buys it that's a totally different conversation and I get the sense you continue not to all
2: right so I know we want to talk about Leslie's holding up like a clock so we got we're to get to the finale we actually both sort of universally liked but before that Dan having seen this finale how do you feel overall about the curse I thought it was very good. A lot of the things that bothered me about the show
1: had nothing to do with anything that it was building to in the finale. I just knew that the finale was the thing that people were going to respond to very vis- viscerally. And I think that that's, you know, if you're supposed to react viscerally to it, it would be hard not to react viscerally to the thing that happens in the finale. I, I was more bothered by the-, the show's kind of inconsistent ideology throughout. I thought that the episode with Dean Cain As the conservative who they learn that they've been judging incorrectly the whole time and and sort of the message of that and how it turned the mockery back around to them and their silly liberal privilege, which is what the show was already mocking before. It just kind of concretized anything that you should have been able to figure out previously. I thought that was less successful to me than the outlandishness of the ending. I, I still think it's a I still think it's a really good show. I don't think it's a great show. I don't think it's a 10 hour movie. That that for sure. I definitely do not think it is. I think it's a TV show. Um but but yeah I I I can rationalize it because I was neither so high on it previously nor low on it, I could get to the finale and I could be like, okay, well, it, it had it had Rachel Ray, and I thought that was amusing. I, I was all for the Rachel Ray of it, and, and sort of the idea of whether or not it was actually making fun of Rachel Ray, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, yeah, I don't know. What, obviously, you disliked the finale and didn't buy it. What impact did your dislike of the finale have on your sense of the 10 episodes of the series, which you also didn't <laughs> like
2: as much as some people yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wish the show had been shorter. I wish, like, both the episodes were shorter and the season were shorter. It just felt really self-indulgent so that even though I think parts of it were great, you had to sort of dig through so much misery and sort of, del- like, I don't think making the audience uncomfortable, which Fielder and Safti are both really good at doing, is like uh, a storytelling good in and of itself. Yeah, you can do that and you can be really effective at at it. But like, what are you saying with that? And ultimately, like what they're saying with it is we're going to shoot Nathan Fielder off into space. And so I think if the if I'd been more satisfied with the ending, I would have accepted a lot of the stuff that was bothering me earlier. But because like I just really hate the ending. No. What if the first
1: scene of season five of For All Mankind is Dev standing on a mountain in Mars looking up? He sees something floating towards Mars. It's Nathan Fielder's body. (laughs) Nathan Fielder's body comes into orbit on Mars. It turns out he's alive. Does that salvage both seasons for you of TV? No. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Fargo. Season five of Fargo, which definitely has felt as if it has been a general audience renaissance. Like, I think probably with season four of Fargo, people stopped talking about it after two weeks. It it felt like the conversation on season four of Fargo ended well before it began, and just no one
2: wanted to talk about it. Totally fine. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I was recapping it for Rolling Stone, and it was I didn't even look at the traffic numbers, but I could just tell there was... A real lack of enthusiasm. And at a certain point, I asked myself, like, I know we commit to doing a full season, but like, is it worth it at this point?
1: And yet season five, it feels as if people have recovered their joy for Fargo. Talk a bit about the finale and your level of joy for Fargo at this point.
2: Oh, the finale was so good. And it, it was interesting because I'm watching it and I'm taking notes and several times I would I would do the thing like from the Homer on a episode of The Simpsons where I go, you know, wrapped up really nicely and much easy, much earlier than usual because like they bust John Ham with I think either twenty or thirty minutes to go. I think it's oh maybe signif- th- significantly more. It's it's thirty to thirty five. Yes. Okay. So there's lots of time to go. Then there's some dealing with the aftermath of that, and so you have uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh visiting John Ham in prison and telling him you know how miserable the rest of his life is going to be. And Juno Temple and her daughter and the Indira Olmstead character, forgive me for forgetting the actress's name, go to the cemetery to, you know, to Lamorne Morris's grave and everything. And then I wrote down in my notes, wait a minute, there are still 20 minutes to go after all of this. And I kind of had a suspicion that Ola Monk was going to return because when he saved uh, Dot at the end of the previous episode... It was sort of with an implied, "I don't want to fight you when you're wounded. I want to fight you like it to be a fair fight." Although I know some people didn't interpret it that way, so that seemed the only possibility. But then he's in the house, and my assumption was, "Oh, okay, it's home alone time again." She's going to improvise a bunch of weapons out of like a vacuum cleaner and a feather duster, and you know defeat this guy. And instead, it's this just beautiful, beautiful conversation between this supernatural force of nature, like the Anton Chigurh of, of the Fargo TV show. And, you know, this sweet, you know, Minnesota, nice woman, who's not really from Minnesota, but is very nice. And she convinces, she like, they talk about the themes of the show, the themes of the season, and she convinces him that ultimately it's better to forgive and to be kind and to be generous than it is to try to collect on a debt. And she gives him a biscuit made with bisquick and buttermilk and he eats it and he is overcome with joy and he smiles and oh my God, it is like the most beautiful freaking thing I've seen on television in quite some time. Like it was just, it was an incredible conclusion to what overall I felt was a very strong season. And then they all float off into space. Not every show ends with the characters floating
1: off into space, Dan. But maybe they should. Um, no. no, Le- Leslie, the season ends with them making biscuits uh making drop biscuits specifically and uh and it turns out in that family you can't have chili without biscuits and uh even though wayne might have put too many spices in the chili it all works out well um yeah i um at least one of our uh of our friends slash colleagues our our former buddy well not our former buddy our buddy Greg Elwood he said that he thought that the last scene went on too long um oh, I
2: Greg no <laughs>
1: I rewatched. I rewatched that one also. I rewatched all of this. People will discover when we get to the critics' corner segment that there's at least one or two shows I didn't get to this week because I was too busy rewatching things. Uh yeah. The the last scene is so long. It's it's twenty minutes, and it's just so beautiful. The interactions between all of the characters and the performances and and just the the different grace notes for each of the characters and the way that they all deal with the presence of this ancient sin eater sitting inexplicably in their living room talking about debts that must be paid which of course ties in with the conversation that Jennifer Jason Lee had with John Hamm about the number of prisoners who are in debt and basically her entire uh profession, which is as a as a billionaire made wealthy on the debt industry, which clearly is a thing that really eats at Noah Hawley. Uh, people who remember season four remember that the entire premise of the show initially was that Chris Rock's character invented the credit card and couldn't find anyone who wanted to get in on the business with him. So like debt and the debt industrial complex are things that Noah Hawley is fixated on. But the idea of turning it from literal debt, literal financial debt, into emotional debt and payback and forgiveness was lovely. But just watching, for example, watching uh, David Rysdale's character Wayne try to find different ways of interacting with Ula Munk. And trying to find ways of making sense of everything he's saying, whether it's him talking about coming from across the sea, or whether it's talking about uh, Ullamanch talks about monk talks about the century that he didn't talk, and <laughs> and Wayne is like, oh, I'd go crazy if I didn't talk for an hour, and the whole metaphor about the tiger, the the man and the tiger. And Wayne is like, Yeah, we saw a tiger at the at the Minneapolis zoo. <laughs> and and just Ula Monk not responding to any of it is fantastic. The interactions <laughs> with Scotty with the kid, where you know they're passing each other in the kitchen and they're getting annoyed with each other, and Scotty getting annoyed with the fact that Ulamonk doesn't know how to measure out a cup of uh buttermilk, <laughs> and then his the death stare that he gives her when she tries giving advice. Just so many. Gorgeous performance details. Sam Spruill, amazing performance. Um, We've been talking about Juno Temple since the beginning of the season. This is a great performance. This is a, this is a Kirsten Dunst season two level of performance. And I put that performance as sort of in the upper pantheon of Fargo performances. It is so wonderfully comic and yet so deeply felt, um, yeah, th- those last 20 minutes of the finale are, to me, so totally what Fargo does right. And then the Carter Burnwell score begins to kick in as he's beginning to contemplate the the drop biscuit he puts in his mouth. And, and every time that score pops up in the series, I cheer every single time. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just great emotional
2: beats. I thought Lamorne Morris deserved more. <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, that w- that's my main objection to the season is that that was not enough of a character for it to feel bad that he dies. You know, you'll learn more about him when they're visiting his grave a year later than you did over the previous nine and a half episodes combined. Um, and I thought Lamorne was good. Like, I thought he gave sort of the character a quiet dignity. And you feel invested in the idea that he owe- he feels he owes a debt to Dot for having saved his life in the first one. But there, there just wasn't a character there, Uh, and that's a shame. Especially because everybody else was so really well served by the season.
1: And yet, you know, so, so I felt like he deserved better. But at the very least, I felt like they they kind of honored him. They like they understood that he deserved better as well. So, so he got kind of the he got the tragic hero removal on the stretcher after. Evil, evil John Ham killed him. Uh, he he got the scene at his grave. He got the details about his six sisters, about his cat named Lucky. Uh, I, I no, his. Had, I, I believe his cat is named Ferguson, Dan. I Ferguson. believe that. I think that is a different TV show, Alan. But I am not completely sure. Uh, yeah, so, so, so I guess I wanted better for him. Um, I, I'm not completely sure that I needed. The Jennifer Jason Lee threatens John Hamm with a lifetime of prison rape scene. Uh, as as a conclusion, like the idea of mocking him, the idea of the FBI agents mocking him because his son turned on him probably maybe even felt like enough to me for that character. And definitely the scene with uh, with Jennifer Jason Lee and Juno Temple and the admiration that uh, she shows for her that Lorraine shows for Dot and and just the compliment and her struggling to deal with this daughter-in-law who now suddenly wants to hug her and now suddenly wants to be affectionate that to me I think probably would have been a more emotionally satisfying ending but we you know we want to see our bad guys get threatened with a lifetime of prison rape and so we we sort of
2: needed that scene i'm just not sure i
1: really needed that scene honestly
2: yeah no i get that and one of the things i appreciated over the course of the second half of the season was how many times they put the john ham character in a room with somebody who was like better at all of the things that he thought he was good at so like when he first meets jennifer jason lee and there's there's this incredible scene where she basically like picks him apart as you know a man baby like he, he wants all power and no responsibility um you know, that was really good when the FBI is sort of surrounding his compound and he goes out and he thinks he's going to intimidate the head of the FBI SWAT team. And the guy is just so much more like laid back and confident and badass than him. You know, he's just at every turn, he is not the sort of superhero he has made himself out to be. And I thought you know, and how afraid he is when Dot has the gun. All of that I thought was very effective. You're right. I don't know that we necessarily needed the prison rape threat, but I did like that even in prison, he is still sort of trying to craft his own reality of a, oh, you know, I'm better off in here anyway. Like prison is the ideal place for me. You know, this whole, you know, this whole idea that like Dave Foley's character talked about earlier in the season of, we make our own reality. Like that's definitely what this asshole does. So, you know. Good for you, John Ham, who I thought was terrific. I thought, like you said, Temple was incredible, Ham was incredible, Jennifer Jason Lee was incredible. It was a really, really satisfying season.
1: It was, and it was and it was probably a more complicated. I, I think probably that the season took its turn into darkness immediately after the last of the episodes that critics were sent. We were sent six episodes. And I know that my review uh, talked, you know, praised the show, talked about a return to comfortable form, but I also definitely talked about the levity of the season and the relative lightness and lack of weight to it. Uh, not so much that it would float into outer space, but definitely oh, God. Uh, a lack of weight. Uh, and then, and then of course, immediately episode seven and eight are, are pitch black. They're just tormented. And the episode with with you know, with Dot and, and the hallucination and the puppet show and all of that which which was probably my second favorite, or maybe my favorite full episode of the season, a lot of the emotional undercurrent of the season kicked in at episode seven, and uh, I, I kind of wonder if if FX had been able to give us the entire season initially, if reviews would have been even more positive. They were already plenty positive. I just think they could have been more positive.
2: All right, Le- Leslie keeps pointing angrily at the timer on her phone. She wants to kick me off the show. So before we go, Dan. Rank the I seasons. did nothing of the
0: sort.
1: Which part? You definitely were kept pointing at the, the clock on your phone. Now, the fact that you don't necessarily do or do not want to kick BFF of the five, Alan seven while off the podcast, that's something else.
0: You asked me to, to keep you posted and make sure the segment was 45 minutes.
1: I did, and we're doing just fine. Okay. You, you seem to be asking me to rank the seasons. Okay. A uh, 2 1 Three. I think three is wildly underrated. And I've gotten to the point now when people, when people denigrate three on social media, I've just started randomly responding to people when I see it. Like you're you're not giving three enough credit. I think the second half of three is is as good as anything in one and two. It has some bumpiness, but I I love the second half of season three. I think once it stops being the look, we figured out how to get two Ewan McGregor's on screen at once season and starts being the Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Carrie Coon, and David Thewlis season. Season, I, I think that is spectacular. And then five and, and four. But uh, so, yeah, t- to me, it's it's two,
2: one, three, five, four. How about you? I, I feel like I need to rewatch one. It's just been so long. And I think it sticks in my memory a little bit less than than two does. Um, I would go, though, two, one, five, three. I agree with you. that The second half is great. But the Ewan McGregor stuff really drags it down in that first half. And then, you know, four obviously lasts like that's there's some good stuff in four, but not remotely as much as in any of the other years.
1: Yeah. One of one of the things that I've definitely been thinking uh, in the past couple of weeks, you know, after watching the finale and everything w- was how badly our best 50 shows of the millennium uh, so far list missed out and in not including Fargo. I it was on my list. It, it would have been not low on my list, but there was not enough additional support. And so I didn't choose to make that a fight I wanted to have. Uh, but in retrospect, having had the show bounce back and having now gotten to the point where I think the show is four great seasons and one ambitious season that just didn't work uh, to me, it definitely should have been in that top 50 and I, and I regret that. So my apologies next time we re-rank them, I will make sure Farco is in the list.
2: But to tie this all together, I will say this. We have one show where I do not remotely buy at all that the character shooting off into space has anything to do with anything that came before. And then we have this show, which at various points has featured uh, UFOs, a trip to the afterlife where the wandering Jew like kills a guy, and now an immortal sin eater from Wales 500 years ago. And on this show, all of that stuff makes sense and all of that stuff fits in, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, it's it's able to make this stuff feel like a part of it and not just like a stunt. I am inclined to agree, but that comes down to what the shows build their
1: foundations upon leading up to that. Uh, but yeah, I definitely more buy-in on Fargo. There's, there's no question about that at all. Alan,
2: where can the kids find you? Um, I'm at rollingstone.com every day. I've got a weekly free Substack stack newsletter. Uh, What's Alan watching? New, uh, New issues come out every Friday, so if you're listening to this podcast, you can get a new one right now, where, among other things, I go through every single year that Better Call Saul did not win the Emmy for Best Drama, or Bob Odenkirk did not win the Emmy for Best Drama Actor, and look at who did win and try to figure out how that happened and whether that was fair. Um, I'm also on various social medias, all at Seppenwall. Excellent.
0: Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure.
2: Always a pleasure, even if I'm no longer the only BFF, but maybe I still am, in which case, woo
0: Woohoo! Float
2: away, Alan. Float away. (laughs) I fly away at great speed. It's not floating. Number five.
0: As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got the final season of Sort Of on Max, one of our favorite shows here at TV's Top 5, the returns of all the Law & Order shows on NBC, Amazon's Has-Been Hotel, the animated series, and the former TBS comedy and former Fox comedy, Chad, gets its second season on Roku. Really mixed week of stuff here, Dan. What do you got? It is. And and again,
1: as I just said in... That last segment with best friend of the five, Alan Sepinwall, there were a lot of choices that I had to make on other things to watch, and so there were things I didn't get to. So you didn't mention the woman in the wall with Ruth Wilson on Showtime or Paramount Plus or Paramount Plus with Showtime or Showtime with Paramount Plus, whatever it is. Uh, our colleague and friend of the five, Angie Hahn, really really liked that one. I will absolutely watch that one eventually, but have not gotten to it. Have, did you watch any of the new episodes of Sort of? I did not have time for that.
0: I haven't gotten to it.
1: Yeah, no, but that is still a show that that I like very much. And at some point, I will definitely get to episodes of that. I did get to a handful of episodes of Has Been Hotel, which I think is interesting on a number of levels. Uh, I think its entire production process, that it, this is a thing that Vivian uh, Medrano, she did a pilot for it, and it was ordered for YouTube, and then it was ordered to series. But while the series was being made, she did a spin-off that aired online. So the spinoff came before the actual series. I liked a lot of things about Has-Been Hotel. It's sort of a story of the underworld and the daughter of Lucifer has tried to set up a kind of halfway house hotel to redeem people and get them out of hell because hell is overpopulated or something. It's got a distinctive animation style, a courtesy of the good people of Bento Box. And uh, mostly what I liked about it is that the cast, it's kind of an animated version of the cast of The Gilded Age, where in just one ridiculously talented Broadway person after another, starting with Erica Henningson, who was in the original cast of Mean Girls on Broadway, but really just a huge cast of young Broadway superstars doing decent enough songs. I, I think I watched four episodes, and by the fourth, I was really kind of done with the story, but I kept watching because the... Musical numbers were, were pretty decent. Uh, not great. It's it's kind of a sort of modern musical thing that I don't usually respond to. But you're getting people like Alex Brightman, Stephanie Beatrice, the aforementioned Erica Henningsen, Daphne Rubin Vega, Jeremy Jordan, Christian Borley. Great cast of Broadway people um, doing decent work, having having some fun. Uh, so give it an episode or two. You'll either respond to it like I didn't find it at all funny and i didn't find the story the least bit interesting but episodes are 23 minutes and they and they really actually move kind of fast so credit to that. And then the other thing that I guess I, I want to at least mention because some people, actually a surprising number of people in various social media platforms and whatnot seemed curious about this, uh, Death and Other Details on Hulu, which is sort of the latest in a never-ending series of murder mystery shows on television. My review at one point before my wonderful editor, uh, John Frosch, cut like half of the references was just like an ongoing list of different types of murder mysteries that have been on television in the last two years because it's like five per week
0: we've been watching this one and i start calling it only murders on the boat oh for sure
1: and that's and it's absolutely in that vein it's kind of only murders at the end of the world it's basically uh knives out it's it's just one after another and like two or three per week at this point i thought it reminded me of the <laughs> of the relative brevity and elegance of so many of the great Murder mystery writers, whether it's Agatha Christie or Dashiell Hammett or what have you, this did not need to be a ten-episode show. I think that as a six-episode show, there would have been a lot of good things to it that would have kept me interested. Instead, I got to eight of ten episodes. That was all that Hulu sent out, and by the end of eight episodes, I was I was just out of interest. It was not sustaining me anymore. But it's still a great cast. Mandy Patinkin as greatest detectives in the world on. Every show, just last week, we had uh, Monsieur Spade, um, Clive Owen as Sam Spade, the greatest detective in the world. And then, of course, a couple months ago, we had Murder at the End of the World, in which the main character was called uh, a Gen Z Sherlock Holmes. So Sherlock Holmes would be another clear example of antecedents for this. Similarly, we had Fall of the House of Usher, because, of course... Murder at the Room Org was another of the first detective novels. So lots of just so much homage. I need a little bit more substance behind my homage, but I always like Mandy Patinkin. I'm always disappointed when you have Mandy Patinkin in things and you don't let Mandy Patinkin sing. Come on, find a way for Mandy Patinkin to sing. Also,
0: why does Mandy Patinkin have an accent in this?
1: <laughs> because because he's the greatest detective in the world and it's, it makes him seem classier if he's somewhat British. but but only somewhat i i don't completely understand that either i mean i guess i understand that slightly more than the not singing thing though they find a way to let lauren Patton, who's one of the co-stars of death and other details Uh, sing a cover of something midway through and she was an Emmy winner for the Jagged Little Pill musical a couple years ago fantastic voice at some point someone said what is the thing we can do with this character when she gets drunk sure let's have her sing because we have Lauren Patton no one thought to do the same thing with Mandy Patinkin lots of good supporting performances I always enjoy watching Jerry Burns and things I think that Violet Bean the, the lead actress here I think she's striking looking and I think they have a lot of fun dressing her up in fun costumes and with her uh, very amusing blonde bob but again 10 episodes of this was for me too much it was not sustainable at a certain point the red herrings and the twists just ran out of energy for me but maybe your appetite is more because I always have to remind myself of this just because I watch three different murder mysteries on TV every single week and am very very fatigued at this point with the genre does not mean that everybody does some people only seek out the occasional murder mystery when it has a hook that they like and the idea of only murders on a cruise ship I can see why some people would want to check that out so I was I was surprised given how little promotion I thought I had seen for this show I was surprised by the number of people who knew that the show existed and were actually curious about seeing reviews for it so yeah I think I think some people will will have an insatiable desire for the show and will be interested by it. Um I ran out of energy, but maybe you will not. It's on Hulu. Or the first couple episodes are on Hulu.
0: Is that all you have, Dan? Yeah, that's all I got for this week. Oh wow. Look, there's
1: again, um I I rewatched all the finales to chat with Alan, so that was some chunk of time. And then I'm reviewing <laughs> a half dozen documentaries and TV things out of Sundance, so...
0: Have you seen the We Are the World documentary yet? I have Sundance? not.
1: That is, that is not on my plate, unfortunately.
0: I cannot wait to watch that.
1: I'm curious about that. Yes, no, I, I did not get to that one, but... Yeah, lots of Sundance coverage.
0: Yeah, we'll have to do, do a Sundance segment coming up. But Perhaps in the meantime, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark thr.com slash tv dash reviews. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
1: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. They help spread the word of... Of mouth. Come say hi to us on all of your various social media platforms. She's at snoodit with two O's. I'm at the fine print F I E N. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments and you know, it could be time maybe next week or the week after for a mailbag segment. You, you never know. Sometimes weeks are packed with news and other times not. You can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com until next week, Leslie
0: until next week, Dan.